Some years ago, Judith Theorst wrote a little collection of poems that she entitled, How Did I Get to Be 40 and Other Atrocities? And in it is a poem that is, it, it so carefully describes the situation that a lot of people in the room right now, including myself, are in. Let me abbreviate it for you. I finished Six Pillows and Needlepoint. I'm reading Jane Austen and Kant. I'm up to pork with black beans and advanced Chinese cooking. I don't have to struggle to find myself, for I know what I want. I want to be healthy and wise and extremely good-looking. I'm learning new glazes in pottery class. I'm playing new chords in guitar and in yoga. I'm starting the master, the lotus position. I'm improving my serve with the tennis pro. I'm practicing verbs in Greek. And in primal scream therapy, all of my frustrations are vented. I've bloomed in organic gardening, and in dance, I've tightened my thighs. In consciousness raising, there's no one around who can top me, and I'm working all day and working all night to be good-looking, healthy, and wise, and adored, and contented, and brave, and well-read, and marvelous hostess, fantastic in bed, and bilingual, athletic, artistic. <sighs> Won't someone please stop me? There's a scene in Mark's gospel that parodies this. The disciples are in a boat. Jesus is in the boat with them. Suddenly, out of the blue, a strong wind blows up and the waves begin to rock the boat. The sea gets real rocky. According to the New Living Translation, the waves start to fill the boat with water and so the disciples start to bail water and they're rowing furiously and they're blaming somebody for this. They're shouting, screaming, cursing at the sea. And the Bible says in the back of the boat, Jesus is sound asleep. This is in Mark's version, with his head resting on a pillow. Now, do you get the contrast for a moment? We've got disciples who are furiously bailing water, rowing, screaming, blaming, cursing, <laughs> and Jesus all the while in the boat, but he's in the back with his head resting on a pillow. So the disciples run to the back and they wake him up. And they say to him, don't you even care if we're about to drown? Then Jesus stands up and puts his arms out and he speaks and says, with the strongest of imperatives in the original language, quiet down. And immediately the storm got calm. You ever wonder if he was speaking to more than the storm? <laughs> you think he was speaking to them? Us? Thomas Kelly says, deep within us is an inner sanctuary of the soul. 
It's the divine center, a quiet place. It's the stirring of a seed, he says, trying to come alive if we don't choke it out. It's a light within. It illumines the face of God and it illumines other faces as well. He says it is in this quiet center that the slumbering Christ speaks and the soul is clothed with form and action. It is within us all. But like disciples, we flail, we fret, we bail, we scream, we blame, we curse the storm even while we create it. We hate it, but we manufacture turbulence. It's not in the meeting. It's not in the relationship. It's in us. We brought it with us, but we blame somebody else. Church, Jesus is all the while in the boat, in the back, sound asleep, while you're flailing, screaming, cursing, blaming. You think you ought to go wake him up? Think you might want to find him and get him to say something? <laughs> like, quiet down. How do we do that? How do we find that divine center, that sanctuary of the soul, that place of quietness with all the demands of life. Maybe the best way to answer the story is to retell the story for you that you just heard a few moments ago. I'm going to try. I'm going to back up a little before it and I'm going to finish it. Are you ready? Come on. It starts like this. Israel is in famine. They've been in famine for three years. Hasn't rained for three to three and a half years. That means as all the people in the livestock are sick and all the plants in the field are dying. The problem is that the president and his wife are in the grips of a God named Baal. Which makes sense because in their thinking, Baal is the God of the storms. The people believe in that day that the clouds in the sky are the entourage of Baal. They believe that the breakings in the clouds are like windows that show into Baal's palace where he lives. And they think that it is through these windows that Baal will send the rains. So if Israel is in a famine 
and Israel is an agricultural economy, then rain is to their economy what the Dow Jones is to yours. When the Dow goes down, people in America start worrying about their retirement. Therefore, we have got to stimulate the markets and we'll all be better off. In their thinking, when the fields are barren, we've got to get it to rain. And the way to do that is to summon the favors of Baal, the god of the storms. But it's been three and a half years and Baal has done nothing, absolutely nothing for the economy. The president is nervous. He's neck deep in his religion. He believes in the markets more than in anything else. And they're flat. It's time for a voice from the outside. One morning, Elijah wakes up and he hears that voice. The voice says to him, go present yourself to King Ahab and I'll send rain. Elijah is an aging man. He starts on the journey. He's a long ways off and Ahab sees him coming and he shouts from a distance. He says, that you old man? You troublemaker? Brought all this stuff on us? Elijah, you'll like this guy. He's a fiery prophet. Elijah says, I didn't bring this trouble on you. You brought this trouble on you. You have turned the hearts of the people away from Yahweh and on to Baal. And even though he's done nothing for you, you will not go back to Yahweh. This is your problem, not mine. <laughs> but Ahab is neck deep in his religion. He can't just change it. So Elijah says, I'll pose a contest. Go get all of the prophets of Baal. There's 450 prophets. Get them and tell them to meet me on the top of Mount Carmel and we'll have a contest. We'll build an altar. We'll each sacrifice a bull on the altar. We'll each call on the name of our God to light that altar on fire. And the one who lights the fire, he is God. Ahab says, you're on. They get to the top of Mount Carmel and he orders the people to build the altar. There's two bulls waiting to be sacrificed. Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, you pick the one you want, I'll get the leftovers. The prophets choose the, the, uh, the bull that they want to sacrifice and they lay that bull on that altar and they start to chant and then sing and then scream and then they start cutting themselves. This goes from about six in the morning till about noontime and so far nothing has happened. Elijah starts to taunt them. I told you you'd like this guy. He steps up and says, why don't you scream even louder? Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's deaf. 
No, wait a minute. Maybe he's on a trip. No, maybe he's busy. So they start screaming even louder. They are cutting themselves now with swords. It's almost four or five o'clock in the afternoon. It's been almost 10 hours of screaming and ranting and cutting, and there's nothing. Elijah steps forward and says, my turn. Says to the servants, go get 12 stones, one for each tribe in Israel, and build it again. And he sets that bull, that leftover bull, on that altar. And then he steps forward and he says, Oh, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known in Israel today that you alone are God and I am your servant. And let these people know that you are turning the hearts of these people back to yourself. As soon as he said that, lightning came from the sky and it hit that altar with such force that it burned up the wood, it singed the 12 stones, it licked up the water that was in the trenches, it consumed, completely vaporized the sacrifice that was laying on top of it. And Elijah said, game over, fellas. That's a rough translation, but Then he said, get all 450 of these prophets. Not one gets away. Take them down to the river and slaughter the last one of them. Baal worship in this country is over. (laughs) Ahab is watching this trembling, still shaking. Elijah just backs up and he falls to the ground and he puts his face in between his knees and a servant comes to see him and says, hey, old man, you all right? And Elijah says, would you go look out over the sea? Tell me what you, what you see. Servant runs out, looks over the ocean, doesn't see anything, comes back and says, sir, there's nothing there. Elijah thinks to himself, any God that just consumed that altar is surely going to make it rain. Go check again, he says. I bet you missed something. This happens seven times. And on the last time the servant comes back, Elijah's still there with his face between his knees, he comes back and says, sir, (laughs) there's not, well, I did see one thing. I saw a cloud about the size of a man's fist. It was rising above the sea. Elijah smiles and says to Ahab, you better hitch up your chariot, man. It's fixing to rain. Ahab thinks the old man won the contest, but he's lost his mind. And yet while he says it, he looks up and the cloud.
clouds begin to form and then they get dark and ominous. He starts to hear the thunder. Ahab hurries up and hitches up the chariot and he makes a mad dash back to the city and it's starting to rain. When he gets back to the city, Elijah is already there. Now you would think that this was the day when Israel's religion had changed. It was beginning to rain. The market was stimulated. The economy was making a comeback. Israel's having revival. This is not the case. Because Ahab's wife, Jezebel, is the chief over all 450 of these prophets that just got killed. So the conversation must have went something like this. Ahab to Jezebel. You won't believe what just happened today. What's that, honey? You know all those prophets? You know that cabinet of prophets who work for you? Mm-hmm. They all did. What? They're dead. What happened to him? Jezebel, before my eyes, lightning lit up that altar, consumed everything on it, and then that old man had all 450 of your cabinet members slaughtered down by the river. Jezebel says, you tell that old man by this time tomorrow, he's gonna be as dead as those prophets are. She calls up the Navy SEAL Team 6. Says, I want that old man killed by this time tomorrow. Order of the Queen. Messenger comes to tell this to Elijah. And all of a sudden, Elijah has a turn. It's like he starts losing courage. It's like he's exhausted from the conflict. He's tired, he's hungry, he's frustrated, and instead of fighting Jezebel, he turns and he runs into the wilderness, and now he's all alone. And he gets into the wilderness, and he sits down for the night, and he just starts to talk to Yahweh. He says, I'm no better than any of the other prophets that you sent. You send them and they just mowed them down. And I'm not any better. These people, they sicken me. Just kill me. Just kill me. I don't want to live. And he falls asleep. <laughs> Middle of the night, a strange thing occurs. God sends an angel to a man who is depressed, tired, hungry, frustrated, lonely, angry. And he wants to have a conversation with somebody who is so filled with rage and hurt that he doesn't want to have a conversation with Yahweh. Note to self, 
God can speak to you even when you're in the foulest of moods. Middle of the night, the angel shows up to have that conversation Yahweh wants to have. (laughs) It goes like this. Get up. Eat. Don't want to eat. Don't want to live. Eat. He wakes up and looks to his side and there's bread and water. It's like somebody snuck in and laid it there. He starts to eat it and the voice comes back again and says, eat more. You can't go where you're going if you don't eat more. Eat again. As is a strange thing because we don't know where Elijah is going. Elijah has not said where he's going. It's as if the angel knows where Elijah is going, but he hasn't told us. One verse later, we find out where he's going. He's going to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb. This is like Mount Rushmore in Israel. 500 years earlier, Moses, the granddaddy of them all, was on Mount Horeb. This is the mountain where Moses saw the burning bush. This is where Moses spoke to the rock and water came flowing out of a rock. It was on this mountain that lightning came down and it says in Deuteronomy, the finger of God inscribed the 10 commandments. That was this mountain. It was here that Israel set out for the promised land. This is a legendary mountain. Exodus says Moses was at the base of this mountain and he looked up to the top and he saw fire come down from heaven. And it says in Exodus that it started to billow smoke like smoke from a furnace, so thick you couldn't see the top. And then the mountain was on fire and the wind was blowing and the whole thing was rattling with the presence of God. That's Horeb. That's where Elijah's going. If he's going to have a conversation, if he's going to find his nerve, he's going to find it on Horeb. (laughs) He gets on to the top of Horeb and he goes inside of a cave He sits down and he starts to rest for the night and he hears that voice again. Elijah, what are you doing? He said, Yahweh, I have been extremely jealous for you, but these people They've broken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed all the prophets. I'm the only guy left. And now they're trying to kill me. The voice says to him, Elijah, go out there and stand on the mountain in the presence of Yahweh. 
he's about to walk by. (laughs) Elijah thinks to himself, oh, I know Horeb. I know Horeb. I bet he's about to walk by. And as he thinks it, he hasn't even left for the mouth of the cave and suddenly he sees or hears a strong gust of wind of hurricane force, 140 miles per hour blowing outside. So hard the Bible says it was splitting the rocks. I didn't know wind could do that. He listened and thought to himself, this must be where Yahweh speaks. He hears nothing. A moment later, he starts to feel the ground rumble underneath his feet. He hears boulders falling on the outside of the cave. He thinks to himself, this is what happened to Moses. This must be where God speaks, he waits. Nothing. And a moment later, a bolt of lightning comes from the sky, like the one that lit up the altar. And he thinks to himself, surely God, who lights the mountain on fire, is going to speak. And God does not speak in the wind or the earthquake or the fire. Still perplexed in the back of the cave, there is utter silence. It's what the New English Bible calls a low murmuring sound. King James Version calls it a still small voice. It's a bad translation. It's actually a combination of two Hebrew words, one word meaning sound and the other word meaning silence. How can something make a sound and yet still be silent? How can something that is totally silent make a sound? One starts to wonder if what Elijah heard was not a whisper at all. He heard the silence. He was hearing silence. God was speaking silence. He was finding that divine center, that sanctuary of the soul, that slumbering Christ. He'd woke him up. And in the language of silence, God was speaking. Elijah, what are you doing here? You just asked me that. I told you. They're killing all the prophets. I'm the only one left. Elijah, go back the way you came, boy. And when you get there, 
you anoint Hazael king over Arab, and then you anoint Jehu king over Israel. By the way, 30 years later, Jehu, whom Elijah anointed, would be the one who kills Jezebel. Elijah could not have known this. When you get back, I want you to anoint Jehu king over Israel. I got an idea. And by the way, Elijah, anoint your successor, Elisha. And there's one more thing. I still have 7,000 people in Israel that not have bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, you're not alone. Now be on your way. Two things rise from this story. One, is that there are times when God speaks in the earthquake, wind, and fire. But it's just as likely he will speak in silence. If you want to hear his voice, you must become proficient in silence. For there are days when God was not in the wind or the worship service, the music, the preaching. And yet some of us in the room right now, we cannot hear God in any other place but worship. There are times when God is not speaking in a mission trip. Sometimes he does, but not all the time. You can build churches, schools, hospitals, but there are days when he may not speak in that language. And there are times when God will not speak through your class or through that teacher or that author, he will speak in silence. And if you want to hear him, you have to quit making him speak only your language. You have to become proficient in his and it's silent. Church, why do you hate silence? Why do you wage war on silence? We invent noise because silence bores us. It unnerves us. We don't know what to do with it. So we'd rather sing, chant, anything but be still. The second observation, 
is that the only way for silence to help you is to structure it. What scares you about silence is it feels like the wild to you. I don't know what's going to happen. The moment, Steve, the moment I stop talking, all of these thoughts that just come rushing into my mind. I've got things I've got to do and I've got people that tick me off. I've got commitments and I've got deadlines and I've got these insecurities and like demons, they just fill the room. I can't be quiet. Can I suggest that you structure that time like this? Start with meditation. Go from that uh, into prayer. And then from prayer, go into, is it readiness or preparation? So a typical time for me, I have no one else's time to talk about, I'm sorry, um, is I will choose a time, the same time every day. I will choose a space. I have six or seven. I'll wander from place to place sometimes until I feel. I know it's like, hmm, this is the place. I can talk to God today here. I can't over there. It's, I can feel it. It's here. I will get in that room. I will assume a posture that prepares me to speak to the divine. What that means is I will not slouch. I will not cross my legs. I won't fold my hands. I won't do anything else. I tend to think C.S. Lewis is right. My soul will do what my body dictates. I make my body tell my soul what it's going to do right now. Once I get in that place, my mind, like yours, comes horribly alive with activity. The first time I spend thinking of all the stuff I got to do, and then I sometimes shout invectives at my enemies, and then I start thinking of the deadlines, I start replaying videos from yesterday. I start worrying about the thing that's happening tomorrow. I cannot stay in the presence. Does that happen to you? The problem is not that this happens. The problem is that we quit when this happens. We think, ah, this isn't prime season for talking to God. It should be easier than this. I must not be ready for this today. Well, look, you don't speak Russian either, but if you were to learn that as a language, you would have to get comfortable fumbling through it and doing things that were awkward because you believe in what you're trying to do. So you stay with it. You stay in the room until all those thoughts have petered out. And now there is nothing left but a tired mind. And now is where you start using scripture to focus it. 
You may use the Lord's Prayer. You may use the 23rd Psalm. You may use the names of God. You may use John 17. Sometimes I will picture a scene in the Bible and I will contemplate myself in that scene. I'm in the boat right now. The waves are coming over. I'm flailing saying, wake him up. All of this is done in meditation. It's a time of letting go. It's a time of listening. Silence is how we disentangle from the world. When you feel like you have to post a comment on every conversation being had, you will always get entangled in things you really don't need to be entangled in. Say nothing. Silence is where you ponder like Mary. You put things together in your mind and it adds weight to your words when you speak. In meditation, I find my silence. When I'm done, I go into prayer. When I pray, I pray for the whole church as a, as a body, as a community. I say, God, while we're trying to do all these things, what is happening to us that we don't even know that it's happening? Sometimes I will sit over here and I will look over an empty congregation, except in my mind, y'all are sitting there. <laughs> And I start praying for us as a church. And then when I'm done, I start praying for some of you by name. I don't have a written list. If I did, it would be pages long. So what I do is if God calls your name to mind, I pray for you by name. If I say I will pray for you, I pray for you. I'm not trying to get rid of you. I don't speak Christianese, which is, yeah, I'll pray about that, which is a kind way of saying, get lost. If I say I'll pray, I'll pray. I just don't know how many days. And when I pray, I don't just mention your name. I will plead your cause. Or if I don't believe in your cause, then I will try to find out what God's cause is and I will plead that to you. Sometimes I'll send texts. Sometimes I'll write notes. Sometimes I'll stop you when I see you and say, I was praying about you, Ryan. This is what came to mind. Is this close? That happens in prayer. And finally, before the time is over, I get into a position of readiness where I get ready to present myself to the day. Some time ago, I learned how important it is for us to use our physical bodies in everything that we do. And I, 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 never, I never thought it was that big of a deal. <sighs> yeah, the incarnation, that's not a very big deal, you know. So I went through this exercise where I would start talking about the parts of my body, the parts that are giving me the hardest time right now. So maybe it'd be my mouth. 
Maybe it's my eyes. I'm looking at the wrong things. Maybe it's my heart. It's too tense. It's my posture. I never look at people or I'm always checking to see when is this conversation over? Wait, I just got a text. It's almost as if every infraction I make, I make with my body. I never caught that. So I will start presenting the parts of my body to God in prayer for that day. I'll rehearse the meetings. At 10, I got another one. And these are the personalities likely to be in the room. Sometimes when the day is over, I'll go back to the Lord and have a wrap-up conversation. How'd that 10 o'clock go? It is in this preparation and rehearsing that I catch myself. Church, more than anything this morning, I long for you to find the language of silence. There are days when God will speak to you through a burning bush or a talking donkey, but it's just as likely he will speak in silence. And if you want to hear it, you have to go present yourself before the Lord on the mountain because he's about to walk by.